Please turn with me again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount this morning, we're looking at verses 27 through to 32. Let's read God's word. Matthew five twenty seven. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We continue today with Jesus teaching us about kingdom righteousness. A righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. A righteousness that comes from a work of God from within. We saw in previous weeks that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, far from it, but to fulfill the law. In his life and death, he came to give the law its true interpretation and full meaning. The Pharisees and scribes, their focus was on external obedience to the law of God. They were restricting the meaning of the law to make it more manageable for themselves to keep. Last time, Jesus explained the full meaning of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, showing us that the sixth commandment includes angry intentions and desires in our heart. Now Jesus takes the seventh commandment and shows its true interpretation and full meaning and scope. Look again at verses 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Now again we see with this commandment, the Pharisees and scribes, they were trying to limit the scope of the seventh commandment. They were interpreting its meaning as simply a full-blown marital affair. And so if they hadn't committed this specific sexual sin, they were happy that they had kept the seventh commandment. But look again what Jesus says. So he says, you Pharisees, you have said this, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you see how Jesus broadens the definition of sexual sin, giving full meaning to the seventh commandment. Now, of course, Jesus is applying this to all people, okay? It's not, as you read, don't think it's just to men or just to married men. Because to think this teaching does not apply to you is to take the very role and mindset of the Pharisee. I believe Jesus' point here is to show that every sexual practice outside of its God-given context is a breach of the seventh commandment. And every practice that is immoral in deed or action is also immoral in thought. When we think of sexual ethics and standards, we can be very quick, I think, to kind of look out there and condemn all the actions that we see and hear of. But what Jesus wants us to do is to look in here and be aware of the lust in our very own hearts. To give a bit of a definition, I believe when, what Jesus is referring to as lust here is referring to desire, fantasy, imagining sexual engagement with someone you have no right to. So let's think a bit more what this lust is that would cause us to break the seventh commandment. Now first it's important to say that every sexual desire is not Wrong. It's important that we are clear about that. God is our creator. He made us sexual beings. Part of our human nature is to desire sexual fulfillment and satisfaction. That is good. That is to be celebrated simply because that is how God made us. And what God does is always good. It was God who created, who instituted marriage. It was God who made that special intimate union a part of marriage. And as that is part of marriage, it is important to note that sexual union is not merely an act. It is not merely a bodily function. It is not merely a means of gratification, but that union is the two sexes, two persons, male and female, coming together, uniting body, mind and soul 
drawing a husband and wife to each other, confirming their marriage bond and strengthening their unity. One writer says no one can go to bed and leave his soul parked outside. And that's very true. It's not hard to see why God confined sexual union to the permanence of marriage. And it's not hard to see why sexual expression outside of marriage causes never-ending hurt and never-healing wounds. But within the context of marriage, Scripture is very clear We are free to enjoy, to delight in, to be captivated with mutual sexual pleasure. This is good, this is right, this is pleasing to God. People will often speak of sexual boundaries. And essentially, people are asking, what can I engage in? What can I do outside this marriage context and get away with according to God's law. And I want you to see how Pharisaic that question is. How can I take God's law and twist it to suit my own agenda and feed my own lust? You see, we often ask the wrong question, don't we? What we need to ask is, what is biblical sex? As those in the kingdom of God, what is a kingdom sexual ethic? It's amazing, the Christian believers who cannot give a clear biblical definition of what sex is. Or maybe they don't want to. God's purpose and God's context for all sexual expression is within the marriage union. And so I want to suggest this morning, and what I believe Jesus is teaching in this passage, is that any sexual expression, whether in deed or thought outside of that context, be that premarital, extramarital, or private, is breaking God's law. God is the creator of sex. It is his right to define what that should look like. But the problem is, we are told loud and clear from society from the world in which we live, that the individual is free to define sex as we see fit. Jonathan Grant, you may not have heard of him, he's an Australian Anglican. He has an excellent book that really helps us to contrast the world's sexual ethic with, with God's. He uses the term personal integrity. That is, being true to the inner testimony of our desires. So in other words, if it feels right, it is right. If it 
feels good and it's consensual, well then, anything goes. Now, the list that Jesus speaks about here can take many forms. Again, our definition of lust, that is desire, fantasy, imagining sexual engagement with someone you have no right to. Jesus has said that simply looking at a woman can cause us to lust. We're out and about, we're shopping, we're doing whatever. You notice a good-looking woman, you notice a handsome man. Now, I don't believe that simply to acknowledge beauty or attractiveness in someone is wrong. In fact, it could well be God-honoring to acknowledge who God is as creator and how God has made people. But we have a moment, don't we? And James talks about this, when our desire brings temptation. And that temptation is to move away from acknowledging beauty to then wanting and imagining something with that person you're not entitled to. Someone you have absolutely no intention of committing to in marriage. Now, I think just here it's important to make the distinction between temptation and sin. Because I also don't believe we need to feel crippled with guilt because of temptation. But to know you are tempted and not sin, frustrating as it may be to feel the temptation, I believe should actually be very encouraging for you. I mean, if temptation was sin, then the writer to the Hebrews couldn't say that Jesus was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. Or think of the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our our debts or our sins. But lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. You see? We need forgiveness from sins. But we need deliverance from temptation so we do not sin. Now, I don't need to tell you that our society is hypersexualized. Sex sells, and that is so true. Advertising is bombarded with such images. And you know, at times we simply cannot help a sexual image being flashed in our faces. We see it without ever going looking for it. Martin Luther, speaking about lust, he says, I can't help it if birds fly around my head, but I can stop them nesting in my head. You see the point? Yeah, at times we we can't help being faced with sexual images but we can help how we respond to that. We all know TV and film is saturated with sex. In fact, a a TV series will have more sexual content at the beginning of a series. Why? To draw us in. Now, there are all sorts of arguments here as to why we should or shouldn't watch certain shows as Christian believers. 
You know, TV shows are art, TV shows are drama, we should appreciate that. It may only be a 30 second scene out of an entire show. I mean, I, I can watch it and it doesn't have any effect on me. Now, we could spend an entire morning on this. But our focus, our question from this morning is, are we lusting in our hearts? So yes, it may be art. It may be just 30 seconds. But it only takes 30 seconds of art, let's say, to throw us into days, maybe even weeks or months of lust. And even with the slim chance that you can view sexual content with no effect, well, we've got to ask, is it wise? Is it wise? Does it line up with Paul's teaching to the Romans to make no provision for the flesh? Does it line up with Paul's teaching to Timothy to to flee, to just run away from temptation? I'm sure you will know that Pornography, industry, statistics are all together disturbing. What's interesting, the United Kingdom has the second highest incidence of internet pornography searches in the world. They come second after um, the U.S. Statistics will tell you that almost half of U.K. Christians admit to using pornography. It seems 30% of Christian leaders, that is, pastors, elders, youth workers, view pornography regularly. And of course the reality is that those statistics are probably much higher because they're all based on honesty. Now I know we can't put everything on statistics, okay, but I'm simply making the point that Christian Believers struggle with lust. And perhaps the most alarming or actually the most sad thing is that when we look at such statistics is that those in the kingdom don't actually look much different from those outside of the kingdom. But the temptation to lust, it's all aright. It is all aright. You think of Paul writing to first century believers in Corinth, writing to people, we're told, who were burning with sexual passion. If that was the case then, then surely the hyper-sexualized society we currently living in, well, it's just like pouring petrol on the sexual fire within us, isn't it? So all this is to say, we have got to admit there is lust within our heart. Let's not say this has no bearing on me because that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. I have met with several men at different times to support and encourage them out of pornography addiction. And they've been some of the most encouraging times I have spent. But perhaps the thing that has concerned me most are those who I know just don't see it as that big a deal. It's not that often. It's not actually hurting anyone. I'm only doing it because my wife's just given birth or whatever else. 
see, those in the kingdom of God, those whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, are those that can recognize lust in their hearts and know that they need heart change. So once we recognize it, how do we go about that change? What are we to do? Well, Jesus tells us very plainly. Look again at verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now Jesus is using exaggerated language here to show that we must deal with sin radically. Of course he's not saying we literally rip out our eye or we amputate our hand. But he is saying that we do whatever it takes to prevent ourselves from lust. So if it's your eye, if it's your eye that's causing you to sin, tear it out. Just don't even look the direction of anything or anyone that will present temptation and cause your heart to lust. If it's your hand, if it's your foot causing you to sin, don't go anywhere near places or things that may present temptation and cause you to lust in your heart. We would say, don't even touch them with a barge pole. Completely and utterly get out of their way. So if you're out and about... Walk with your head to the ground. If it's a certain billboard in a certain place, you go the other direction. If it's a certain TV show, it's obvious, isn't it? You don't watch it. If it's your phone, get rid of it. Just get rid of it. And you might say, Paul, this is all very drastic. Yes, sin is drastic. Jesus draws us to think of eternal consequences. That is punishment from God. Now again, let's be very clear here. Jesus is not saying that everyone who engages in sexual sin will go to hell. But I believe he is saying if we refuse to call sin what it is and thereby reject Christ, then we can expect Punishment from God. He's drawn those in the kingdom to think long term, eternally. He's drawing us to see that it's worth sacrificing pleasure, experiences in this life for the full and altogether satisfying life that is ahead of us. So we do what we can to remove ourselves from temptation. 
But what about when temptation is presented and our desires give way to sinful lust? Well, what do we do then? We recognize our sin. We confess our sin to God and we turn again to Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 John 1. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How good and how comforting are those words to those of us who struggle with sexual sin. The blood of Jesus there is referring to his sacrifice on the cross for our sin. You see, when Christ died in our place, he died for every sin, including every lust and every sexual sin indeed and thought. When we confess our sins, we are forgiven again and again and again. So when we're looking to Christ, there is no longer any punishment for sin. There's no need for guilt. The price has been paid. And more than that, more than forgiveness, Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This is present tense. This is an ongoing, continual cleansing from sin. That Christ's one sacrifice has forever effect. Isn't that why we sing in the old hymn, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Christ's sacrifice has continual power to forgive us and to cleanse us over and over and over and over again. Isn't God's grace in Christ just remarkable? That every time we sin sexually and we turn to Christ again. We are not just forgiven, but we are cleansed. Given a clean slate, as it were, again and again and again. And that means that sexual sin in the past does not need to determine our future. Yes, there may be scars of time left from the past, things that you, yes, may need to work through with a future spouse or a current spouse. But because of what Christ has done on the cross, we can look forward in Christ to that clean slate, a new, clean sexual life. If you have, or if God gives you in the future a husband or wife, you can enjoy that special union God has given you free from all guilt. What a gospel we have. What grace that God has shown to us. Now just before we move on to our final verses, uh, I just want to say if, if 
you are struggling with lust in, in some way and struggling to see progress, perhaps you're feeling crippled with guilt, please come and talk to me. I would be only glad to try and encourage you and support you through that spiritual battle. Let's go back to verses 31 and 33. Jesus moves on and he addresses the issue of divorce and adultery. I will say at this point, I'm not going to enter a full discussion on divorce and remarriage. and We did that extensively when we were studying Mark's Gospel. And I don't believe it's necessary with our study here in Matthew. But let's look at verse 31, at Jesus' words. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this divorce law, it's based on Deuteronomy um, 24, the first few verses there. So, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favour in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes a certificate of divorce, and it goes on to explain all the, the regulations around that. But the key thing here is over this word indecency. So there are two main views over this word indecency or the grounds for divorce. There was a conservative view which said that the only ground for divorce was adultery. And then there was a more liberal view which allowed indecency to be anything that displeased the husband. So if a wife went to breakfast, if she, he didn't find her attractive, Basically, anything that the husband could come up with, he could have grounds for divorce. And it seems the Pharisees and scribes were holding to this liberal view. And you can see this same pattern, can't you? How they are taking the law of God and they're twisting it to suit their own agenda and to keep themselves in the right. They, they bring up this certificate of divorce, all their focus is on this bit of paper while giving very little consideration to the actual grounds of for divorce. You see, the Pharisees, they thought little of marriage and they regarded divorce very lightly. If we turn to Matthew 19 for just a moment, it helps us better understand the point that Jesus is making. Turn to Matthew 19, and verse 3, I think. Matthew 19, verse 3. Pharisees came up to him, that is Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one 
flesh. You see what Jesus does? He draws them right back to marriage as God designed and God purposed. So when Jesus is asked about divorce, his point back to them is this. Marriage is permanent. Now you see again how the Pharisees, they were asking the wrong question. You see again how we can ask the wrong question. Similar to we said how we can ask the wrong questions about sexual expression. Remember, instead of asking, what can I do and get away with? We need to ask, what is biblical sex? And we're brought back to marriage. And here, instead of asking, what are all the reasons I can get divorced? We need to be asking, what is marriage? How did God design marriage? What was God's purpose for marriage? And of course, Jesus brings us to see that marriage is indeed a lifelong commitment. And he said to these Pharisees, if you're divorcing without proper cause, you are really committing adultery. And I believe that's the main point that Jesus is trying to get across here. And he will say if you've been through divorce and you have had significant grounds, significant biblical grounds for divorce with no other option, please rest today that God has graciously permitted that. Perhaps you've been through divorce and you're not sure if there really was significant biblical grounds. Well, again, you can come to Christ. You can know his forgiveness. You can know his cleansing. You can face a future free from guilt. In Northern Ireland, it's interesting, the main cause for divorce is separation. So if you're separated for two years, you can divorce with, with no consent, or sorry, with, with consent of the, the two parties. Uh, it's, it's what we call no-fault divorce. So there, there are no significant grounds for divorce other than, but it just wasn't working out the way I thought. Perhaps it wasn't meeting my expectations, my feelings, my desires have, have changed. And we see again the contrast there, don't we? Those in the kingdom of heaven, those who have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, they believe in the permanence of marriage and they believe in sacrificing their wants and desires and whatever else in order to have a permanent marriage. Paul tells us in Ephesians, Andrew got us to focus here at the very beginning. And that was really helpful. Paul tells us in Ephesians, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. The permanence of marriage is important primarily because it is a picture of Christ's love for the church. A love that is selfless. A love that is sacrificial. A love that is unconditional. A love 
that is unending. And may, may we today know this love in abundance. Let us pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful again for you to draw us to the love of Christ. His selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, unending, eternal love that we will only know in greater measure as we continue with you. Father, as we continue to battle sin in our hearts, as we continue to battle lust in our hearts, will you forgive us our trespasses? Will you forgive us our sins? And Father, we plead, please keep us from temptation. Deliver us from all evil. We want to be clearly seen and noticed as those who are children of the kingdom. God, continue your great work in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.